0: This is the Living Homegrown Podcast, episode 140.
1: Welcome to the Living Homegrown Podcast, where it's all about how to live farm
0: fresh without the farm. To help guide the way to a more flavorful and sustainable lifestyle is your host, national PBS TV producer and canning expert, Teresa Lowe. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lowe, and this podcast is where we talk about living farm-fresh without the farm, and that includes organic, small-space food growing, canning and fermenting the harvest, and artisan food crafts like baking your own bread. It's all about the different ways that we can live closer to our food and take small, delicious steps towards living a more sustainable lifestyle. If you'd like to learn more about any of these topics or my online courses, my coaching, or my Living Homegrown membership, just visit my website, livinghomegrown.com. On today's episode, we're gonna dive into some plant-based recipes and really how to cook more plant-based recipes, which is so important if you are like me and you grow a lot of your own food. Now, I am not vegan, I am not vegetarian, but I am a food grower and I'm always looking for a lot of plant-based recipes for my diet. It's healthier. It makes me use what I'm growing and I always am trying to look for ways to really showcase and put a spotlight on what I'm growing. I put a lot of work into having vegetables that are seasonal and taste wonderful. And so I want recipes that really do the showcasing for me. Now, To help us dive into this topic, I brought on author Laura Wright. Now, she has a blog and a book by the same name called The First Mess. Now, her cookbook, The First Mess, is brand new, and it includes vibrant, plant-based recipes to eat well throughout all the seasons. And I really wanted Laura to come on for two reasons— First of all, her recipes are really fantastic. These are not like vegan recipes where she's trying to recreate a meat recipe in a vegan way. You know, which, by the way, that always felt kind of weird to me whenever I'd see that in a vegan or vegetarian cookbook. But that's not what Laura does. Instead, what she does is she skillfully takes produce and she shows us how to create layers of flavor with that produce so that the produce is delicious on its own. Nothing in her cookbook or on her website is having any sort of identity crisis. So I just want to get that out of the way and make it really clear. So if you're at all a little squeamish about vegetarian or vegan recipes, you shouldn't be. Because if someone knows how to really prepare vegetables properly, it's all about flavor which I know is what you guys are all about. So we don't grow food just for the heck of it. We want that flavor. And that is what Laura does on her in her book and on her website. Now the second reason I wanted to have Laura on though is because she comes from a gardening family and a gardening background. So she knows how to grow food herself. In other words, she totally gets us. And I think she really appreciates the work that we put into producing some of the food in our own backyards. And she understands seasonal flavor because she is a gardener. So... I just felt like she was the perfect match for all of you, and I know you're going to love her. Now, whether you are vegan or not, I want you to listen to everything that she talks about when it comes to adding flavor and layers of flavor to our food. It's really, really key because it can help us in everything that we do. And there's a recipe that we dive into while we talk, and it's a recipe for this really great chickpea chard rice soup. And don't worry about trying to, you know, have a pen and paper ready to write it down because Laura is letting us have the recipe on the show notes for this episode. And to get to the show notes, you just go to livinghomegrown.com slash 140 and there will be information about Laura's blog, on her book, and you can print out the recipe so that you can give it a try. I know you will love it because everything that I've checked out in her book has been absolutely delicious. Now let me tell you a little bit about Laura. Home cooks head to the first mess for Laura Wright's simple to prepare and seasonal plant-based recipes, but they stay for her beautiful photographs and approachable take on everyday wellness. Laura grew up working at her family's local food market and vegetable patch in southern Ontario. And after attending culinary school and working for one of Canada's original local food chefs, she launched the first mess and quickly attracted a large following. Laura still resides in southern Ontario with her partner and rescue dog, Cleo. Now, Laura's blog evolved into the First Mess Cookbook, which came out last year through Penguin Random House. And it's a collection of 125 seasonal plant-based recipes that have been featured in The Washington Post, Goop, Oprah.com, and Tim Ferriss' Five Bullet Friday email. Laura has also developed recipes for Clean Eating Magazine, Food 52, The Kitchen, and Alive Magazine. One of the things that captured me when I was looking at this cookbook for the very, very first time was when I was reading in the introduction that Laura wrote, and she said, A plant-based lifestyle in accordance with Earth's rhythms makes me feel amazing. But with my blog and cooking in general, I always aim to inspire rather than preach about the virtues. Like omnivores and vegans alike, I eat for pleasure first and tend to gravitate towards a certain overall abundance with my food in color, textural variation, and good flavor. That's what this book is all about. It really teaches you how to bring out the best flavor in your vegetables and fruit. And since we are growing vegetables and fruit, I just thought you guys were going to love it. So that's why I brought on Laura. Now before we dive into the interview, I just want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by my Living Homegrown Institute, which is my membership site. And I truly believe that living an organic, farm-fresh lifestyle is really just a journey in learning. And as we learn the different skills, such as food fermentation or food growing or even critter keeping, there are three distinct stages of growth. We start out with curiosity, then we move into experimentation, and eventually we grow into mastery of these different skills. The now, if you're working towards creating a farm-fresh lifestyle for yourself, I've got a free resource for you. It's my farm-fresh success path, and it's what my students use inside my learning institute. It'll help you decide where you are on your own journey, the characteristics of that particular stage, and some action steps that you can take to get to the next level. To get to the success path, it's a PDF, and you just go to livinghomegrown.com path, P-A-T-H, and you can download it there for free. Okay, so let's dive into my interview with Laura Wright. I think you're going to really learn a lot from this. She is the author of The First Mess Cookbook, and she is the blogger at The First Mess Blog. Here we go. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about this because, you know, I I say in the intro that one of the things I love about your recipes is that you really showcase produce the way it should be showcased. You know, it's just good food and you'd never even know that your recipes are vegan. So thank you for doing that and letting the produce kind of speak for themselves.
1: Oh, yeah, that's definitely... I never really identified with the fake meat thing. I just love vegetables so much. So that's, yeah, that's where I'm at too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like there's no identity crisis going on here. Like you're not trying to substitute veggies to be imitation meat. You know, you're letting the veggies, let the veggies shine. (laughs) And so that's, that's yeah, absolutely. So I love your blog, The First Mess. And since your cookbook kind of stemmed from your blog, I thought we should start there. And so could you first explain to everybody about the name. Where did the name come from?
1: So the name, I was kind of like just wrestling with what to call it. And I had been reading a lot of food writing from MFK Fisher, who's a famous food writer. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been just randomly reading a lot of her stuff, like just picking up a book and reading a passage or whatever. And randomly on the old Gourmet Magazine website, this is when Gourmet Magazine was still around. On the Gourmet Magazine website, they had her work called An Alphabet for Gourmets available totally online. So I'm just casually reading it. And under the entry for the letter P, she describes the first mess of peas in the springtime <laughs> and how the staggered plantings of peas were so like her and her family just looked forward to those peas so much because it was that first kind of crop in the spring that you get and it just tastes like minerality and sweetness and it's just an indication of the abundance to come with the spring and summer season. So when she wrote about that with such reverence and such high regard, I just really identified with that it was that total earth connection to your food, Um, just a whole
0: system at work that you really respect. So yeah, I
1: just, I saw that and I was like,
0: oh, I'll go with that. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I love the name. I love it. And I love the story behind it. That's just so awesome. And, and we're going to talk about how you have a gardening background too, but I, w- I think we should first dive into how you first got involved with food because you have quite the culinary background.
1: My involvement with food is lifelong. Um, my parents had a kind of a farm to table produce business. It was a local food produce market in the Niagara region of Ontario, Canada. And I just grew up with local food. Like it was just, it was kind of a store where people in the community would come if they couldn't like get out to a farm stand or they couldn't get to a farmer's market on the one day a week, they would just come to my dad's store where the best local produce was available during whatever time of year. So I always knew even like as a child growing up that like you had really good corn in August and the best strawberries came like kind of near the end of June. Like it was just something that we knew and we were so blessed to grow up knowing about seasonality and that kind of thing. So my love of food, my interest in food is just from the beginning has been there. And then... I finished high school. I went to university for kind of like a liberal arts thing or whatever, but I was still working in restaurants just to pay for tuition and whatnot. And then I finished that and I was still working in restaurants because I obviously (laughs) could not find a job with my liberal arts degree. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll just go to chef school. Like I had just turned vegan and I was really enjoying the process of cooking again, just because I was trying all these new techniques and ingredients. I was like, maybe I'll go, like, I'll do a nutritional culinary program. Maybe that's, like, what's pulling at me. So I do that, and I'm still working in restaurants, like, all the time. I'm working for one of Canada's, like, original farm-to-table local food chefs at this point while I'm in school. And I just feel like I'm really in my element, and I'm learning so much. I'm volunteering at, like, a food bank and community food education center as well, and... Um, And then when I come out of all of that, I move back to the Niagara region where I'm from. And I get a job at a new restaurant, but it's not busy at all. So I have all the spare time. And my friend just says casually, like, you should just start a food blog so you can share all of these great things you've learned and all of these experiences you've had. And you can just write about food and tell people about, like, your recipes and what you're making. I was like, okay, that sounds like a really fun (laughs) hobby. I'll just do that. And then it just totally turned into what I do for a living basically.
0: Ah, that's so awesome. Well, I think one of the reasons I connected with your blog was really because I, I could see that you immediately understand the nuances of some of the vegetables and fruits that I grow. And like you, you get it, you know, as a gardener, we put a lot into bringing out those seasonal flavors and there's nothing like something fresh picked and you take that and turn it into something wonderful. So I would love to know, like, what's your philosophy around the food that you put on your blog?
1: I would say, and this is different for everyone in terms of like a proper definition, but it's very natural and organic. I don't try to like, I don't try to like jam a square into a circle and like take vegetables and turn them into like a weird meat simulation. I just really enjoy vegetables so much, especially because like, and you get this because coming from a gardening perspective, you work so hard to get them and to make them perfect for me, when they're in season, when I'm ready to cook with them, I don't want to fuss with them too much. I just want to maybe give my readers or my followers kind of maybe a new food preparation method or like maybe just give them a more streamlined way to prepare something or like a new spice blend, something as simple as that, or like a really great sauce that like is very all-purpose, but especially well-suited to whatever's in season. I just really let the vegetables kind of do their thing or like the whole grains, the pulses. Like, I mean, I work with a bunch of pantry stuff too, but I love simplicity, but like thoughtful simplicity that lets the true seasonal product be the focus.
0: Absolutely. And you know, that's, that's just, that's just good eating. I mean, that's just good food and that's, that's what you do. And I was curious if you get a lot of readers on your blog who are like me who are not necessarily vegan but who just love the the recipes do you get that a lot
1: most of my readers are omnivores I think like that's Ah. the vibe that I get just from kind of the messages I get in my email inbox or the people who tag me in food photos on Instagram like people will tag me on Instagram with like a salad they made of mine. And next to it is like a sliced up steak. And I'm fine. with that. <laughs> I'm so fine with that. And like, sometimes it's just families that do like, the meatless Monday thing, or they have like a, a kid or two that is trying the vegan thing. So they try one of my recipes and everybody just happens to eat vegan that night. It's not their way of life. But they just eat it that night. And that is a huge victory to me. That is, it just makes my day. And of course, like all the committed vegans, plant-based people who cook for my site and book. I mean, I love them too. But like, I love, I just love seeing, it sounds so counterintuitive to hear a vegan say this, but like, I love seeing the steak photo with the broccoli salad. (laughs) I'm so fine with it.
0: Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Because you're really, you're, you're expanding and it's such a healthier way to eat. And so, you know, even if it's baby steps to eating healthier, it's, and we do that, we do meatless Mondays. So I totally get that. Uh, So I also wanted to know, like, One of the, when I talk to people about, because as many of my friends are vegan, and when I talk to other people who are not vegan about eating more plant-based foods, if they haven't been introduced to it in a way like the way your blog does, I think they either worry about the food not tasting good, which you totally take care of, you make everything taste wonderful, or they worry about not getting enough protein. Is that one of the questions that you get a lot?
1: That is a question I get. I get like, uh, like last year when my book came out, I did a few events with it. And a lot of the people who came to my events were like concerned mothers whose children <laughs> are vegan or recently vegan or even vegetarian or like mostly plant-based. And they're like, I don't know how to get protein into my kid. Like, I, I mean, I always say this to anyone who asks me via email or in person, like protein is in a lot of things. Like vegetables have protein, um, obviously, nuts, beans, grains—they all have protein. You don't have to eat like a block of tofu at every meal. Like it's just your body knows how to combine all the different proteins to make it complete. You know what I mean? To so, like yeah. absorption, and even like. Just little things like sprinkling hemp seeds on your salad or trying to eat quinoa like once a week because it's a complete protein. Like just these little tiny steps. And like I think there's a lot to be said for just not worrying about it as much. If you are really concerned, like if you play a lot of sports or something like that, like you can just get a really simple plant based protein powder. Like Amazon sells one that's just made from ground up dried peas. Like and you just, yes, a spoonful. In your smoothie or like I even put like because I put fruit and everything in my smoothie. I will put like a quarter cup of lentils in my smoothie and I don't even taste it. Like if you're worried, I, like cooked lentils, like already cooked lentils. Yeah, like the white lentils or French lentils. I just put them in with like my like banana, peanut butter, whatever smoothie. I don't Neat. eat it at all. But like I think generally you do yourself a bigger disservice worrying about the protein rather than just eating and knowing that your body will work it out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny, uh, the same people and, and I did this, too, when I was first looking at it, uh, you know, the kids might be eating junk food all day and, and they'll be more worried about protein with a vegan diet when they're really getting so much nutrition from being vegan or vegetarian. So I think that's that's a really good point. Well, you have a section in your book that I really loved and I don't even know if you meant this intentionally, but it was on stocking the pantry and what you what I think people would think when they see that is they're going to go, OK, now here we go. Now we're going to get into the weird ingredients. But it's not weird ingredients at all. It's just really good ingredients that we should have in our pantry to cook real food, to cook wholesome meals. And that's what I loved about it is that, you know, it really was not weird. There wasn't weird stuff in in there. Is, was that really your goal when you created the pantry?
1: Oh, yeah. Like I always try to make any food I'm making, I want it to be relatable. And I want to create like some kind of like ease or relief in someone's life when they cook for my book, like whether they're just enjoying the food or it was just easy enough for them to get it on the table for their family. And I know there is sometimes that criticism of plant-based or vegan food that you have to spend a fortune on all these new things to cook with. But, and I think I say this near the beginning of the book, you really just want to focus on, Getting that trifecta of like proper amount of salt, a little bit of acid, tiny bit of sweetness to balance things out. And if you have normal pantry ingredients that speak to all three of those things and like, you know, some good fats and everything just to really round out the flavor, you can do anything. Like you really like the sky's the limit. You can do anything. I just I have normal pantry ingredients. I don't really buy a lot of weird stuff or like kind of niche items. So I definitely don't want to reflect that in my book and intimidate people. I want to welcome people to the lifestyle. I don't want them to feel like they have to spend hundreds of dollars just to get started.
0: Yeah, exactly. As I started thumbing through, I was like, oh, this is so good because this really shows like just having the basics on hand, like you talk about, you know, we should have you know, brown rice, beans, canned tomatoes, things like that, in our pantry all the time. And from that, you can whip up just about anything. And then you have uh, some some things. There was one little section that you had towards the end, which I thought was really good. And I'd love to ask you about it first. It was flavor savers that you had, and they were just really simple things that we could have on hand that really can boost flavor.
1: So this is out of the whole pantry section, the flavor savers area. Probably, if you have a very basic pantry a couple of the things there might be new to you but uh, like some of them are regular too like i think i have mustard in there which is mm-hmm. basic but like i mean you add it to vinaigrettes you can add it to any kind of sauce and it really balances the flavor it gives you like that fifth taste or umami right um yes. but other ingredients i have in there are miso which i mean I don't know. I think a lot more people are cooking with miso now outside of like making a soup. But like, I, again, I put that in any sauce and it just gives it that depth of flavor, that like little thing that you can't definitively pick out, but it's just so satisfying because it's there. Um, but yeah, miso, tamari, any of those like kind of fermented soy things are amazing. And you can buy non soy alternatives for both of those things now. Um, and I think I have nutritional yeast in there, like that's the wildest ingredient I think in the whole pantry section,
0: and it's like, yeah, but that's not a hard thing to get anymore, yeah, exactly, and so describe the flavor of nutritional yeast
1: it is everybody says well, not everybody, but a lot of people say that it is cheesy. um, I don't know if I would call it cheesy, I would call it deeply savory. it has like it's amazing if you're making like a kind of a knockoff vegan cheesy sauce or something like that. But for me personally, my favorite use for it is in like a vegan Caesar salad dressing where I'll do like a kind of like a cashew base or even I've made like a sunflower seed base. Like I use raw sunflower butter and just add water, the nutritional yeast, some garlic. And it gives you that like, I don't want to say cheesy because I don't think it is cheesy, but it is like just a deeply savory hinting at cheese kind of flavor.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a full flavor. It's it really is hard to describe. I hadn't really thought about it when I asked you that question, but um, because I've had it too. Uh, but it, yes, it's a very full. It's a deep, satisfying, almost like um, you know, curl up by the fire kind of flavor. I don't know if that even makes sense.
1: Savory. I don't know. I just yeah. I put it on everything. It just tastes so good. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I pick it up, they have it in bins at like Whole Foods grocery store. It's very easy to get.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they even have it at like Trader Joe's, like all the majors have it. So
0: Yeah. Good, good. Well, there's another section that you have on pantry ingredients and that's natural sweeteners. And so I thought we should just touch on that. What are some of the natural sweeteners that we should have in our pantry?
1: I am from Canada. So maple syrup is my number one. <laughs> I really love it. Obviously, I grew up with maple syrup, but I just love like the got that rich, like, I don't know, caramelly flavor. It also has like trace minerals in it. So it is like it has some virtues going for it too. I love maple syrup. I just, I even like in a salad dressing for a savory salad, I'll put like a quarter teaspoon of that in there just to balance the flavor out. Like it won't taste sweet, but it will taste uh, complete in a way. Mm -hmm. I love maple syrup. I love when I make kind of like raw desserts or more simple desserts. I love medjool dates. That's definitely not like a local food item for me, but I will splurge for them because I just love them so much. Or even like, if I need a snack, I just put a little almond butter in a date and that's my favorite mm. I just love that. Um, dates, maple syrup sometimes if I have to make like a baked good that really needs structure, like certain styles of cookies really need like a granulated sweetener. so I will go to like a coconut palm sugar or even a maple sugar if I can like get my hands on some that's somewhat affordable. But i that's least often. Like, usually I just try to work something that I can make it with the maple syrup because, I mean, I just live in the land of maple syrup. I have a ton of fun <laughs> all the time. Like, friends of ours tap their trees in the spring. So...
0: Well, oh, fun. That's really cool. Yeah, I did notice that you had a lot of maple syrup. So now that makes sense. But uh, I, I love using maple syrup as well. And another thing that you recommended in the, uh, in the pantry section was you love sprouted whole spelt flour. And I wanted you to tell everyone what was so special about that.
1: So sprouted, I found this when I was testing for the book. Like I would get whole spelt flour, I would get light spelt flour, like the one that's billed a little bit more and uh, sifted. And then I tried randomly at my bulk food store, they had sprouted spelt flour. So the germ or the grain was obviously sprouted and then dried and then ground. And I found the flavor of it to be, even though it was a whole grain flour, it was lighter. It wasn't as strong. Like I love the nutty flavor, but it wasn't as strongly nutty. It also seemed kind of like malty and sweet in a way. I just found that it performed better in baked goods, especially for like something like a cake. Like it was even like, it it seemed kind of more tender than typical whole spelt flour. So I kind of just stuck with that because the best results I was getting was with that spelt flour, the sprouted version having said that, I've recently tried just a regular whole spelt flour from this producer in Canada called Grain. Grain is all in caps. And their flour is so fresh. Like they have such a strict like mill package sell schedule. Their flower performs just as well. So I think it's, it's something combined with like the sprouted nature of the one flower and like maybe freshness has a lot to do with it as well. But I've just, yeah, I'm a real spelt fan, but I'm a lot more picky about my source than I used to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that I'm sure that makes a huge difference. Well, you said something there that caught my attention, and it was when you mentioned cake. And I know being um, with my friend who is vegan, she has all these, like, tricks up her sleeve for when she has to substitute eggs in recipes? And I know that's a question that people will ask me a lot. Like, if you don't use egg, then how do you hold everything together? So what are some of the tricks that people can use if they want to eliminate eggs from their diet?
1: So eggs are like the trickiest thing to replicate in vegan baking for me, especially if you're not going to like one of those like vegan egg replacers that you buy at the store that's already formulated. For me, mm-hmm. cakes, I will go to, depending on the nature of the cake, I will go to either like a quarter cup of applesauce as a replacement. And that also gives you a bit of sweetness too. And also just making sure you have a proper combination of like acid and base. So sometimes that means just adding like a teaspoon of vinegar in with whatever non-dairy milk you're using in the cake, just so that it reacts with the baking soda and you get that lift. Um, With something like a cookie... Usually, typically, and again, depends on the nature of the cookie, typically a mixture of ground flax seed, about two teaspoons, like freshly ground is ideal. Ground flax seed mixed with like three tablespoons of water, and then you just let that sit and gel for like a minute. That will kind of form the perfect egg replacement. It's enough to hold your cookie together. Um, In other instances, I have used... This is kind of still new to me. I still play around with it. It's the water from a can or from cooked chickpeas. It's called the aquafaba method. Okay, Like the strained off water from the cooked chickpeas that you're like holding the chickpeas in, as long as there's no salt added to the water. You whip that up with whatever granulated sweetener you're using and a little pinch of cream of tartar. And the protein structure is very similar to egg whites. So people will make... Uh, meringues out of it that kind of thing myself I have whipped up that liquid before with just a tiny pinch of sugar in the cream of tartar and have used it to like bind veggie burgers like how you would do an egg in a veggie burger situation mm-hmm. I've used it in brownies and it's amazing like you get crackly tops on your brownies with it um yeah like people are just coming out with new egg replacement
0: yeah what? the the flaxseed uh, one I had I hadn't heard of that one, the flax seed. I oh, thought that was. I think
1: that's like the most common egg replacer, or like sometimes people will do like a ground, at least in the vegan world, it seems like it. I know mm-hmm. people will do like ground chia seed too with the water, and that also works.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense because, yeah, the chia will definitely, it, it it's like a thickener. So that makes sense. It would hold everything together. Very good. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad I asked that in case someone just, you know, maybe someone, even if they don't want to be vegan, maybe they don't want egg this is, it's good to know how they can replace that. So fantastic. Well, one of the recipes in your book that really caught my eye was the smoky saffron chickpea shard rice soup. I First of all, the photo was amazing, but I loved it because I get a lot of people who write to me and say that they've grown shard And then they don't know what to do with it. (laughs) It's beautiful in the garden and it's very easy to grow, but they're always looking for different ways to use it. So I'd love it if you could tell us about that recipe in the book.
1: Okay. Yeah, no problem. That soup recipe has a full bunch of chard in it. So it uses a lot. Um, I have that problem as well, where I love growing chard just because I love the way it looks. And it's just in the spring, you're so excited to plant everything. So I just plant like a whole row and then I have way too much. (laughs) <laughs> that was really the motivation with the soup, but it's a really basic soup. It's like a it has chickpeas and rice, so complete protein, a little bit of tomato paste to kind of make the broth rich and a little acidic, a little bit sweet. It has like just you know onions, carrots, like all the typical soup kind of stuff. but it also has a bit of uh, smoky paprika and the shard. And a little bit of um, just a little pinch of saffron, like not too much just to give it that really nice kind of fragrant aspect. But it really is about just the simplicity of like the beans, the rice, the greens. It's a very complete meal with not too much fuss. Outside of the saffron, it's like pretty basic spice drawer kind of stuff and like pantry stuff too. I do because the soup is so basic – I do like to recommend like making your own vegetable stock or just using like a low sodium one if you're buying one at the grocery store just so it doesn't mess with the flavor too much. But it's just like hearty and light at the same time. And I like I could crave it all the time. Like it's just all the things I like to eat, just lots of greens, whole grains. And yeah, I love it.
0: Oh, yeah. And it looks really filling too. And uh, the the one thing like you do at the very, very end, you add lemon juice. Is that just to to brighten it up, to kind of bring out the flavor?
1: I always like a bit of acidity with my greens and especially chard. I think it really benefits from a squeeze of lemon because I think it can kind of taste like a little flat sometimes if you don't. So yeah, that in addition to the little bit of tomato, it just kind of lifts everything up. and makes it feel kind of light but also still really cozy too.
0: Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I I really want to encourage everyone, even if they're not thinking of becoming a vegan, because that's not really, it's not like, this is not a book where you're trying to convert anybody. <laughs> it's just delicious food. And I really want to encourage everybody to go check out the book and we'll have the recipe on uh, the show notes and as well as information on your website and the book. So I'm excited about that. And I, I really want to thank you, Laura, for coming on because this has been super informative. I know you're helping a lot of people not only eat better, but you're showing them how to really bring out the flavor of plant-based meals. So thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I had a great time.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview from Laura Wright, the author of The First Mess Cookbook. Now, as I said in the interview, I have everything about Laura on the show notes for today's episode. We even have a printable, downloadable, free PDF of the recipe that she was talking about that used chickpeas and shard, and just sounds delicious. To get everything, including the recipe, just go to livinghomegrown.com 140. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. I think it's really cool to be able to learn how to better enhance the flavors of some of the fruit and vegetables that we're growing in our own backyards. Or even if you're not a gardener, what you pick up at the local farmer's market can be so much better if we just know a few of the chef tricks for really bringing out those flavors. Now remember that today's episode was brought to you by my Living Homegrown Institute, which is my membership site. And if you would like the free PDF all about the success path to living farm fresh, then just go to livinghomegrown.com slash path, and I will have a free PDF for you to get started. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, just try to live a little more local, seasonal, and homegrown. Take care. That's all for this episode of the Living Homegrown podcast. Visit livinghomegrown.com to download Teresa's free canning resource guide and find more tips on how to live farm fresh without the farm. Be sure to join Teresa Lowe next time on the Living Homegrown podcast.